Find easy ways to store your outdoor tools and accessories at Menards. Suncast provides high-quality and easy-to-assemble storage. Suncast storage sheds are the perfect solution for organizing and protecting your outdoor tools and equipment. Plus, their all-weather construction is low-maintenance. Explore all our outdoor storage options in-store and on Menards.com. And check out more of our great deals going on now at Menards. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. I'm serving, providing he didn't come in with drink on him. But I'd never know whether he had a drink problem or not. Like, if he come in sober, if he was quite sober, I wouldn't know uh, he had a drink problem. But I would serve him then. Now, if a man had a drink problem and come in with drink on him, no, I'd refuse to serve him. I've been hospitalised 14 times. I've been committed twice, which is the bit where they, they don't ask, they tell. You see, I'm the son of an alcoholic myself. And I could see the circle being set off over again. My son, my eldest son, the same thing was happening to him as it's happened to me. I think it's their own fault why they're drinking like that. People, I'd say, they'd be worried to have some troubles in that. That's what puts them on the drink, I think. Say maybe maybe trouble with their wives or something and just go out there and start drinking. That's what I think. Sweet relief awaits me Forgetfulness is mine When I drink my wine When I drink my wine I can feel no pain, no shame. I leave it all behind when I drink my wine. When I drink my wine. In the beginning, uh, it was a social thing that I enjoyed. In the last few years, I would go in and I would think, you know, a salad is out. I can't stand salads. So a coffee and a sandwich, then I think, Christ, you know, the trouble of eating all that and ordering it is much easier to say, Charlie, Jim and Schweppes in a straight class on rocks, you know. And if you met somebody to talk to, you would try to involve them in the social clang of lunchtime. And as I say, you would have at the back of your head this moral justification that you had done a good morning's work, which I think was roughly true of me in the early days because I always had I except in the last year, eighteen months, I always had some pretty good dedication to, uh, to my profession. I always drank heavy. I in the beginning I could drink heavy and I could I could handle it. I had no uh, bad feelings about it and I, I never was very sick after drink. But it got to the stage where uh, I wouldn't go in unless I was going for it good lot of drink. I wouldn't go out for an hour, say, at night. I, I, I'd, I'd have to get away in the mornings. I'd drink all day. If it was all for nothing, it was mean, humiliating and degrading, the whole bloody thing. 
but if uh, it's it's almost like um, having been through a high powered university of life uh, I don't pretend now that I have the degrees but <laughs> I was at school um, if I can lever the situation around for, for myself and the people whose lives touch mine and indeed the people uh, who I try to get to well then it was a ball it was well worth it because uh, you know I've been in dark corners of the head that, that most people haven't been and I've come out and I'm standing up and I'm feeling great and all is going well it was a sad resumption for me a simple cure for a cold which contained alcohol in the nature of rum and I drank for 17 years after it my definition of an alcoholic was a man who was laying in the gutter or a bottle of cheap wine I remember one incident in England, and I don't believe I don't remember how I got to England. I arrived in Liverpool, and I was walking around the streets that night, and the policeman there uh, pulled me up. It must have been about three or four in the morning, and I, I told him I was over from Ireland and no place to sleep. And I remember him taking me around, giving me a cigarette, and taking me around to this old scrapyard. And there was an old van there, you know, and he kicks in the door and he calls this in, name out, are you there, Pat? And this grumbling, mumbling came from inside. And I got in with this boy. The following morning, he says, there's an alcohol in there, the policeman said. And the next morning, I remember waking up and seeing this lad curled up with this bottle of wine. You know, and if God's day, I'd love a drop of that, no matter what it is. But when I left, I felt terrible with various things like that. I stepped with an alcoholic. You know. I'd lost everything. I'd lost my marriage, my home, my business, uh, my health. Uh, worst of all, my self-belief. And this is the thing you've got to have if you're self-employed. You know, you can take my car, take my money, take my house, but leave me myself uh, thing. Because if I have that, I can put them all back on the ground. Again, I don't give a damn. But if that goes, you can't ever replace uh, And this went. In my case, you see, having resumed uh, drinking after a long period of 13 years, I gradually began to drink, to drink more and the word alcoholic never entered my mind, you see. But I knew for every drink I took during that period of 17 years, it was a mental torment to put my hand out for it and drink it, but I did it just the same. My heart gnawed for whiskey in the long run, so that I could drink for 24 hours of the day. I had it under the bed, under the pillow, in the wardrobes. I had it everywhere. This is a common thing with alcoholics, hiding drinks, not being able to find them. But it came to the point where I had a separate bin at home for empty bottles. There were that many of them in the place. But uh, what hurt me most was the fact that I drank, although I hated the sight of it. I hated the sight of a pub. 
Yet I went into them oftener than most people. And this was the thing that hurt me most of all. I had no reason to go back on drink. I just fell into it innocently, as I told you, about uh, getting a cure for a cold. And a few persons asked me occasionally, why did you go back on the drink? Did you have trouble at home? You know, they're always waiting for that one, you know. Oh, she doesn't <coughs> understand me. Or I'm married to this one and she's no bloody good or something like that. This wasn't my case. It was an innocent fall. It just showed you how it can happen. I didn't go back to drink, to get drink. An innocent fall. That was my first drink. Probably a small spoonful of rum in a bottle of medicine which contained the juice of a lemon, raw egg, brown sugar, an old country cure it was called. And I never had the heart to say to the person who gave it to me what happened to me, you know. If you and I go drinking together, the two of us will get smashed if we drink long enough. But you will get smashed and you'll recover the next day. I will deviate, I will do something daft. Not necessarily tonight, but like if we do it through a week, I'm going to get involved in two rows and you're not. Uh, we both might may get drunk in the social sense. I can remember being in a club one night and ringing my wife, telling her where I was. And the next thing I knew, there was a man at the door <coughs> looking for me. And I, I couldn't understand how they found out I was there. Even, even uh, one man that sat in the back of the car with me going home, when he walked into my house, I said, Tim, where did you come from? complete black. I, I didn't even remember he was sitting beside me, even though I, I was talking to him on the way up. I had no idea how he got to my house. But I, I neglected everything to a drink. I neglected myself, work, my wife, my kids. I was around the streets to get tramp when I was drinking. It was even worse when I wasn't drinking. I went to AA for about two and a half months. But a lot of what was said, I wasn't, it went over my head and I wasn't fit to I wasn't fit to, to, to act upon it. I had the, I would readily accept I was an alcoholic, but I wouldn't accept that there was much wrong with my personality. There were so many flaws in it, you see, that I had so many defences, negative feelings and so forth. I could get angry with people, and then I'd get angry and I'd feel superior. And it was them that was wrong, and I was always right. Certainly in my case, my... my whole latent attitude was suicidal. You were an alcoholic. And it was the first time I ever heard the word applied to me. A heavy drinker, fond of the jar, a boat drinker, many different things. But when he said, you were an alcoholic, everything stopped in my world, John. <coughs> I didn't resent it. it. To me, it was like a the finishing line to something. The something was 50 years of being an alcoholic. And in the middle of the 50 years, I wore the Pioneer pin for 13 years. And I didn't regard myself as an alcoholic then, but I learned here that I was an alcoholic even though I had taken the pledge and wore the Pioneer pin for a period of 13 years. I have never met an alcoholic who wasn't deeply loved by someone. Because they can see someone, you know, 
uh, they can see some superb quality there. Now your man, he could be on the run from eight million posses and, you know, everyone hating his guts, but there's always someone going for him and really going strong. I actually threw in the towel because I, I was ruined, you know, physically, mentally. And uh, when I was told I was an alcoholic, I didn't mind what they called me. Didn't interest me at the time. I felt so low. But as time went by, I started to realise and uh, I made an infantry of myself. I didn't like the things I'd seen. Physically, I, I was completely down. I was sleeping out. Lost jobs. And the last bet he was on was a three-week drinking spree. <coughs> At the end of the day, it was just, uh, I didn't care what it done. Yeah. Uh, I liked John. I was seven years off drink. And come near the end of that period, uh, the fatal mistake I made, I said that uh, I was cured, but I wouldn't drink like I'd drunk before. And actually, uh, I went in for a pint shandy. <coughs> and that was in the evening time, around about five o'clock in the evening. And I found myself in the cell the next morning, after crashing and only into three cars. If I took a drink tonight, I'd probably be terribly funny as the night wore on and do nothing out of the way. But as sure as Christ, you know, give me a couple of days or a week and I'll crash a car or I'll make a mad decision. And it's terribly important to realise with alcoholism, it isn't that you're drunk in the even medical sense of the word, but your head gets wired to the moon, you see, and you start doing the craziest things, you know. Anger is still a part of me sometimes, but I find now I can verbalise it, and I, I can, I can talk, look people straight in the eye, and talk to them. As you know, I like talking to people. I like meeting people now, but before that, when I, when I hated myself, I couldn't face nobody, or nothing. I was all the time hiding and running, afraid. But thank God, all that's gone now. I can stand up on my own two feet, as long as I always remember that I'm an alcoholic, and that I have total reliance on my higher power. God as I understand it. What makes you an alcoholic is, is the thing. Um, the alcoholism is in me. It's not in the booze. Uh, it's, it's important to remember, I think, that it isn't, it isn't that it makes you drunk. Because I was rarely drunk. And I'd have a bloody good buzz on. I'd be spaced. But I wouldn't necessarily be slurring my words or, or staggering. And certainly if I walked to my car, as I often did in the presence of a guard, there would be nothing in my conduct to attract his attention and make him come over and ask me, should I not be driving? I forget there ever was a love I once called mine when I drank my wine. When I drank my wine There's no past, no future I have no track of time When I drank my wine When I drank my wine
I'm 17 and my mother is an alcoholic. I'm the wife uh, of an alcoholic and I knew my husband had a drinking problem from the time I met him. Um, I knew drink changed him. Um, so I knew there was a problem with drink, but I for one minute didn't think that he could be an alcoholic. Uh, what I did feel was that my husband was slowly going mad in a very cunning way. Um, he was doing things uh, that were completely the opposite to his um, personality and his character. He was a very kind, gentle person and he had wonderful qualities which I married him for. His generosity to me and to people all around him. And slowly this was going. Slowly the generosity to me um, as his wife both in affection and in money um, was disappearing. Uh, I wasn't getting the wages now every week. Um, he would go on a bender once every so often. Um, when that episode would be over, I, the feelings I had was, maybe it's me. Maybe it wasn't so bad. I remember being out in the front garden or something once, and she started screaming at me from an upstairs window in her nightdress. This was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I never ran in so quick <laughs> because, um, you know, all the other kids in the neighbourhood were looking up to see who was screaming or whatever. And I was totally embarrassed and ashamed of that. The feeling in the night time and the feeling next morning always seemed to contradict one another. Um, in the night time I would say, yes, there is something wrong. There's something wrong with our marriage. There's something wrong in our home. There's something wrong with him. Um, especially when Mon would be behind the curtain uh, opening it a little bit and looking down the road as I did, I could see the bus stop, hoping he would be on it. And when he wouldn't be, being very frightened. I always expected a policeman to come to the door. Um, thank God I've lost that fear today. Every time a police car or a siren went, my inner feelings was they were coming to me. Um, my husband did have suicidal tendencies which were very, very frightening. Um, something else which I couldn't talk about was uh, violence. Uh, I felt I would be letting my husband down if I for one minute said to anybody we had violence last night. Um, I knew my husband didn't want to be violent. He was very, very sorry afterwards, but it was just a quick flash of something I would say or something he would say and I would answer back that we called him. Um, it's not a very nice feeling sitting in a room with somebody who you love um, and they draw out and hit you physically. Um, I didn't think I would ever see it for what it was. I now know what it was. It was his fears and his guilt and I would just say something that would make him feel guiltier and more remorseful, and he didn't know of any other way to lash out except to physically lash out his fist. 
Um, the feelings of love-hate um, relationship um, to me today are very important. I didn't feel at one time I loved my husband. But today I know it wasn't that I didn't love him. I just didn't like what was happening. I didn't like what he was doing. So deep down I did love him, but I just didn't like it. I was in a school and I couldn't really associate with any of the, the other lads my own age there because um, they'd go back up to somebody's house for tea or they'd be staying the night at somebody else's house. And uh, I couldn't do this because I couldn't ask them back to my house. I was totally ashamed of my house, I was ashamed of my mother, and I was ashamed of everything that went with it. And I didn't want to know it. If I was coming up with some friends, I'd pass my house, and I'd nip back around the back way maybe, rather than to show them that that was my house and that I was going in there, in case they called in for me or anything. And uh, the fear is there, I think it's there for everybody that I've come across anyway, that um, they're ashamed of the situation. And... Um, I was certainly very, very ashamed of my mother. The one memory that will, I feel always stay with me, um, which is very real to me even still, is when my husband put the key in the door in the night time, whether it was 6 o'clock in the evening or 12 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock next morning, the feeling of my stomach literally jumping up as far as my throat and back down again, wondering... What way was he? And sitting in a chair, absolutely terrified to open my mouth. And when I would open it, it was probably the wrong thing that I would say. Or I didn't have to say anything. Uh, my face, uh, through expressions, said it for me. Um, I didn't want him to know I was frightened. But he saw it in my face, and that caused a, a reaction uh, in him. She didn't drink openly. She tried to keep it secret. But there was no way she could, because um, she, all she had to do was have one drink. And I could see it in her eyes. We all knew she was drinking after one drink. And she used to deny it flatly. But we knew it. And um, eventually, by looking around the house, we'd eventually find a bottle of something somewhere. He was a very quiet and gentle man. I loved him. I loved, I idolized my father. And, you know, I idolized him and loved him and took everything that he said so much to heart. If he, the rest of the world said white was white, black was black. My father said the opposite. I would believe him. I loved him. Until, you know, this all started. It was around about 17, I think I was, when I started to get these terrible, hard feelings against him. I really uh, thought I hated him. And for years I carried this around with me. When I was coming home from school, I remember as I approached the house, I could feel the tension mounting in myself. And I was wondering whether my mother was drunk or not, and what kind of state she'd be in. And uh, it sort of got worse as I got nearer the house. And uh, there was a very real fear there. And uh, I remember going up and knocking on the door. And it seemed like ages before anybody came. And the door had opened and I remember looking up to see whether she was drunk or not. I could tell by looking at her whether she'd been drinking or not. And if she had been drinking, the heart would drop into the stomach. And if she hadn't, it'd be just a huge sigh of relief. Another feeling which um, I found very, very hard to live with 
was the shame when we would be someplace at a party or a wedding. Um, I hated the idea of a wedding or a christening or a funeral coming up um, because to me they meant one thing, drink and trouble. Um, the feeling that if he said something that was stupid, I felt it was a reflection on me. Um, I felt when he did something that it was a reflection on me uh, as a person, that it was bringing me down um, and I was going to bring the family down. You know, I'm a great one for laying down the law. Like, I played God. You know, I told him what he was doing wrong, and I well, I was going to straighten all this whole thing out of my house, you know, in my home. And actually, he, <laughs> he wasn't going to take that from one of his children. Sweet relief awaits me, forgetfulness. It's mine when I drink my wine. When I drink my wine, I can feel no pain, no shame. I leave it all behind. When I drink my wine, when I drink my wine. We know that the first admission rate has increased threefold in the last 10 years. I think this is a very striking figure indeed. The majority of people who think they have a drink problem in fact have got one, whether it's of a major or a minor nature. The best course that such a person could follow would be to get some professional advice on the matter. In the meantime, they should contact the Irish National Council on Alcoholism in Fleet Street and obtain some of the literature which is available there free of charge. And then they should follow up by getting professional advice which would either confirm their suspicions or otherwise. There are the subtle signs. Uh, there's, the par there's the personality signs. Uh, some of them we love to boast about and some of them we don't like talking about. One is immaturity, conscientiousness, perfectionism, guilt. Uh, loneliness in the sense of, of, of having the capacity to, to uh, be alone at the All-Ireland in Croke Park. No alcoholic who's drinking can be really healthy they're certainly not happy, and they do not have peace of mind. I don't disagree with anybody going out to have a drink. Gosh, no, because, I mean, this the scene nowadays and what have you, but it's very frightening. I'm very frightened for the young people that are coming up now because I got very sick. I ended up having psychiatric help, being put into a psychiatric ward for treatment through ignorance, through not knowing what was wrong with my life and I couldn't put a name on any feelings at all. I mean I didn't know the difference between anger and hurt or joy or gladness or any I just couldn't put a name on anything. But I can today. I think it's very important for people to to learn about themselves so as to be able to handle the situation as far as alcoholism is concerned anyway.
let me say first of all that I think the stigma attaching to alcoholism is diminishing. I think one of the more heartening features of the alcoholism seen in this country in recent years is the decline in the stigma which formerly attached itself so much to alcoholism. I think that there are various reasons why the stigma still persists. In my experience, the term alcoholic is a pejorative term very often in this country. It's emotionally charged and I think it's used very carelessly. I think that people are often unaware of what the term really means and people have all sorts of misconceptions and wrong ideas as to what constitutes an alcoholic and this is responsible for a great deal of the stigma. The definition of an alcoholic is merely anybody whose drinking causes a continuing interference in any department of his or her life. And this definition very carefully avoids saying whether a person is rich or poor or man or woman, young or old from the country, from the city, clever or stupid, because alcoholics come into all of these categories. And I think if people remembered that an alcoholic is no more or no less than anybody whose drinking causes a continuing interference in any department of their life, they would get a better perspective on the matter and the stigma would diminish still further. Whatever causes alcoholism, and we're still not quite certain as to the precise causation of the condition, there is no doubt but that prolonged exposure to large amounts of alcohol does predispose people to alcoholism. I think the modern view is that alcoholism is a multifactorial disease. We have to take account here of genetic factors. We have to take account of occupation. And remember that people in certain occupations are particularly at risk. People in the licensed business, journalists, doctors and so on are more at risk than members of other occupation. We also have to look at the personality of certain individuals, the immature, the inadequate, the unstable, all these people are much more vulnerable because of their tendency to use alcohol to attempt to solve their emotional problems. It happens with me in the most subtle ways. In other words, bring me to the wedding, the funeral, the party, and I'm going to be the sober one. But uh, one day in, in the summertime, I was driving home, and we were living in Kildare at the time, and I was sweeping around by... Leeson Street and going down the canal to get onto the carriageway and I looked across and there outside O'Brien's were all these young guys in their shirt sleeves on the, on the pavement drinking pints and every fibre in me cried out Jesus that's my scene, that's where I belong park the car and I, you see when your mind gets cleared you can you can surface your temptations you can actually think them out step by step. You can say, oh, Jesus, yeah, it's a terrific idea. It's a lovely July afternoon, and it's 4 o'clock on a Friday. And if you go over there, you can drink with these guys, and you wouldn't know who you'd meet later on, and the world will all swing for you again. And, and I think you should never squash a temptation like that. You should never say, Jesus, I mustn't be thinking. You should damn well think about it and progress it logically. You know, say, okay, now, and then what? You know, can I stop it? Can I go home at 11 or 2 a.m. or 4 or Jesus' breakfast time tomorrow?
I think what I did that day was I said, okay, I'll drive on up the canal and if I haven't got it out of my head, I'll turn back. Knowing damn well I'd be boxed in traffic further up. There's no way I'd turn back, you know, and you can think it out. Or sometimes uh, you'd be sitting at home in, in a sort of an idle moment watching television and a commercial would come on for a new wine. And you say, Christ, yeah, I must get her now to get some of that the next time she's down. And you suddenly remember that is now no part of your world. I think that scientific research has demonstrated quite clearly that the strongest of characters may become alcoholics. Unfortunately, this is another of the myths and fallacies which bedevil the whole question of alcoholism in this country. Many people still have the erroneous belief that if one is an alcoholic, automatically this implies a weakness of character or that one is morally defective or one is categorised in some such fashion. And obviously if this is one's own concept of what being an alcoholic involves, one is going to be very slow to provide to put such a pejorative term on oneself. Some people claim that they could not be alcoholic because they drink only a certain amount of alcohol. And the fallacy in this argument is that it's not the amount of alcohol which anybody consumes as the important point. It is one's reaction to whatever amount one takes. And I frequently find patients who are definite alcoholics advancing the argument that they could not be victims of the condition because they only drink X amount, where their friends, who are certainly not alcoholics, drink perhaps twice as much. And this disregards the fundamental fact, as I say, that it's one's reaction to whatever amount of alcohol one consumes, that's the important point. I think there's far too much uh, drinking, too much advertisement on alcoholic. And I think if anyone gives up drinking, they go home, they sit down and look at the telly, next thing they look at a big point then on the telly, so it puts uh, kind of a, a goo on them, you know? And it starts the mindset thinking again, I'll go down and get one or two points. And this is what happens, you know? A proportion of alcoholics can be treated quite successfully on an outpatient basis, provided that they are prepared to cooperate with the treatment programme regularly. A number of alcoholics can be treated successfully by their family doctors, for example. But having said that, if a patient presents as a severe case of alcoholism, nearly always successful treatment will involve a course of inpatient treatment in the first instance. The object of treatment is to enable the patient to recover from what is a progressive and deadly condition. Now the word deadly sounds perhaps rather melodramatic, but unfortunately it is only too true because the statistics are there which show quite clearly that the mortality rate among alcoholics is staggeringly high. The other sinister feature of the condition is that it is progressive. Alcoholism does not stand still. It gets worse all the time until the patient takes the necessary treatment. So the objective of treatment is to enable the patient to recover from this deadly and progressive condition. In practical terms, the alcoholic is first of all dried out. This means that the poisons which have accumulated in his body because of his excessive drinking have to be removed. The patient is put to bed, 
He's given sedative drugs which are carefully monitored. His physical condition and indeed his psychiatric condition has to be carefully checked. His fluid balance regulated. And obviously these measures must be carried out in a centre where there is a staff who have the experience and expertise to carry them out. My classic test of being an alcoholic is that you have this very clear picture of a guy losing heavily and rapidly concurrent with drink and you take away the drink and he starts winning. It's as simple as that. So the treatment of alcoholism is not just being the alcoholic to stop drinking, essential though this is. The idea of, al of treating alcoholism, the philosophy rather behind the correct treatment of alcoholism is to bring the patient to a stage of recovery. And I like to break this down into several components. For me, recovery means, number one, liberation or freedom from the servitude which every alcoholic has to undergo because he or she is the slave to this drug, ethyl alcohol. So the aim of treatment is, as I say, liberation and restoration. And any treatment program which is less than comprehensive in my view, is only temporising with the problem. I think it should also be stated that the goals of treatment have to be realistic. Alcoholism is a relapsing condition. It may be necessary for the alcoholic to have more than one course of treatment before he or she finally attains the goal of contented sobriety. Alcoholics, you know, as a bunch, tend to be very kind to people. It's more acceptable to be a drinking alcoholic than it is to be a recovering alcoholic because of the stigma attached to somebody that's recovering. You know, when, when a guy is drinking, it's all right. Ah, he's a few too many and, you know, let him go, it's the beer. But as soon as a guy walks in, as I've done, his suit on, dressed up, and I mention the fact that I'm an alcoholic, you can see the sort of the, the elbow touching type of thing and the, the nodding and, the, and the, the looking around the place type of thing, you know. Alanon has opened up a new way of life to me. It has rid my mind of quite a lot of confusion, which I had. I mean, I've lived in utter confusion for years. And now I find that I'm able to think about things without, you know, just straight away. Whereas before, my mind would go around and around. Alanon has done all this for me. I didn't think I would ever find some place that I could go to, that I could talk about what was happening in the home. Uh, I didn't think anybody else spoke about violence. Uh, and I felt the people that had violence were different than me. Um, their husbands were just violent anyway, but I didn't connect uh, his behaviour, the drink and violence, as one basic problem. The difference is just totally different. I mean, she's leading a perfectly normal life now, and um, she's coping really great. There's nothing here for, for, for uh, teenagers, you know, is there, Paul? Absolutely nothing, you know. All I have is this, actually, the, the cabaret scene, you know, and that's, of course, you have to go into the pub for that. We are fortunate enough 
in this country to live in a free society where people have the right to exercise their choice to drink or not to drink within the very generous limits allowed by the law. And I would feel that people should be allowed to exercise what is their right, the right of their choice to drink or not to drink. On the other hand, I do feel that people should try and inform themselves a bit more about drink and drinking and alcoholism before they commence drinking. For example, I maintain, and it's a view not, I should say, shared by all my colleagues, that nobody should take a drink until they're physiologically and psychologically mature enough to handle what is, in effect, a drug of addiction. Ideally, I think there should be education about alcohol and alcoholism starting in the family home and the biggest contribution that could be made by the parents of children in this regard is good example. I feel the education into alcohol and alcoholism should then be continued in the educational system and that the information given there should complement that which the child has already received in the family home. If this happy situation could be brought about, I think that we would have a different perspective on alcohol and I think that many of the problems which beset our society at the moment because of alcoholism would no longer exist. If you ask me what was the single most disconcerting aspect of the alcoholism scene in Ireland, I would say it is the heavy drinking among the younger people in this country. I think there are various reasons to account for the heavy drinking among young people. There's a question of affluence first of all. Young people earn very much more money these days than they used to and their commitments in terms of providing for a family etc are obviously much less than that of older people. I think there is if you like, the tendency among some young people to drink excessively because it represents a sort of an adolescent revolt on their part, a sort of rebellion against their elders. Their elders. I think too that we can't overlook the fact that young people drink excessively because the circles in which they move accept heavy drinking as part and parcel of their normal social life and as you well know young people are very much influenced by the values of their peer group that is to say by the values which are acceptable by those of their own age and with whom they associate. I feel and perhaps I take too gloomy a view here that unless this trend is reversed there is going to be a pool of alcoholics for years to come in, in Ireland.
when I drink my wine I forget there ever was a love I once called mine when I drink my wine when I drink my wine there's no past no future I have no track of time when I drink my wine when I drink my wine